2: Hello, and welcome to the EDH RETCAST, where we're all about commander, data, and dad jokes. My name is Joey Schultz, and I'm joined, as always, by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, he just wants a reprieve from the card Reprieve. It's Matt Morgan.
0: Joey, I'm finally ready to announce that my winter weight is finally gone. It's just too bad that I now have spring rolls instead.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I...
0: you could probably see it in my face a little bit uh,
2: no no I just I weirdly got hungry in that moment and I don't know what to do about that (laughs) like now I want spring
0: rolls Um, I really want to move on from this usually Matt makes him thirsty not hungry but hey
2: (laughs) that's not (laughs) true All right,
0: up next he's aghast that
2: Radagast is rad it's Dana Roach
1: I've been trying to find a concert to go to this summer, but Ticketmaster has the prices just wrecked for every show. I finally found one, though, for only 45 cents. Uh, 50 Cent is the opener, and Nickelback is the the main act. Nope, nope, nope. Don't like it. Don't like
2: that. Our jokes have made me very uncomfortable today, so we're just going to move right into it. Matt, you can hopefully be trusted with this question. What are we talking about in this week's episode?
0: (laughs) Well, I want you to look at this data graph Every time I look at it, it makes me laugh. <laughs> oh, no. That's a spinoff of Dana's jokes. Anyway, so, so <laughs> seriously, uh, this week we're going to talk about some cards that maybe end the game in anticlimactic ways. Uh, cards that aren't really welcome at the tables to end the game all the time.
2: Yeah, what are the anticlimactic cards in the Commander format? There were uh, some responses to this question online, and we kind of wanted to dig into those and see whether we agree or whether we thought some were missing and sort of dig into the idea of what makes a game feel anticlimactic and how can we potentially avoid that to have more exciting EDH games in the future. But before we get into that, we've got some shout outs to do.
1: First, I want to thank Chase, also known as Curves, for the help editing the show. You can find them on Twitter at Manicurves.
2: EDH Rec has partnered with Coalesce Apparel and Design, makers of the best magic merch you'll ever find. Use code EDH Rec for 10% off any order at Coalesce. Their apparel is slick and stylish. We of course recommend the EDH Rec collection, and there are tons of others you can check out, like their new Riptide project, or their Keeping It 100 collections too, with really fun designs. So once again, that's code EDH Rec for 10% off your order.
0: And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by liking and subscribing to this video on YouTube, subscribing to your local podcast app, or by going to patreon.com slash EDH where you can support the show and get yourself a nice little something in return. You can do that over at patreon.com slash EDH which there is a tier where you can get the weekly shout out, which this week we're going to give to Solomon Stein. So hopefully you can fill up your Stein and cheers to yourself because we appreciate the support. So Solomon, thank you so much. Cheers to you. Thanks for going to patreon.com slash
2: Thank you so, so much, Solomon. As Matt said, cheers to you. I appreciate you, Matt. I appreciate you. (laughs) All right, guys, let's get into it. We are talking about potentially anticlimactic commander cards. And the inspiration from this episode actually comes to us from uh, Commander Advisory Group member Shivambat, who asked on the socials a little while ago, what are the most anticlimactic cards in Commander? And it was just kind of a simple musing or thought experiment, but we found the responses, pretty interesting and asked him if we could like make a content about it and he was really delighted about that so we wanted to kind of go over some of those responses and see whether or not we agree but first thing like dana i'll throw this question to you the first thing before we get into it what do you think of when you hear the word anticlimactic like what is your definition of that would you say
1: i i think it's the point where a game's going really well and it ends in a way that is the magic equivalent of the sound you hear when an, when air slowly comes out of a balloon, <laughs> that kind of like slow, like deflating sound, like that, that vibe is what I think of when I think of an anticlimactic card in the game.
2: Chase, as a heads up, we're not adding that sound effect in post, okay? Just want to make sure,
0: okay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, was, I was hoping it could. Can we add a whoopee cushion instead? Because it's kind of the same thing.
2: <laughs> oh, no, no. Okay, so like, yeah, it is a... The, like you said the game was going well, and then at the very last minute, it's kind of like, uh, it was It like was a, a crestfallen moment at the end. Matt, is that the same for you?
0: I would say, actually, all jokes aside, Dana, that's a really good way to put it. Just sometimes the air is taken out of the room, so to speak, or or in this case, the air is taken out of the game, where you think there's something cool being built up to. There's a lot of pressure building, and then all of a sudden just, ugh, and everybody's shoulders kind of collectively drop, because it's not it, it the, the ending didn't really match up to what the game was building towards it could have been something really cool and it just ended up being something that it, it expected or kind of what some players might call the easy mode just a <sighs> kind of ending
2: yeah the the sharp contrast between how you thought things were going and then it turns up. that uh A Game of Thrones finale type of situation is the definition (laughs) that I hear you guys saying. And I think that that's an important distinction or definition for us to set up, because that question also can definitely be interpreted as like, is something anticlimactic, something that stops the game from ever being exciting in the first place, rather than an ending that you feel has let you down? So you know, the stacks pieces of the world, for instance. Stuff that prevents things from untapping could also potentially be called anticlimactic because it doesn't allow the game to ever have any rising action. And there's actually totally another definition that is worth noting here too, although it probably won't take up too much time, but that's the cards that are anticlimactic when you yourself play them. Like not for other people feeling it, but just you. So like an example here is Animist's Awakening. I'm always disappointed by Animist's Awakening. It feels like always whiffs completely or Deadbridge chant is one we've mentioned several times on this podcast or epic experiment like it always seems like it should work but it can totally be a letdown and you just have to try way too hard to ever try and make that fetch happen Um, But that's not quite the definition that we seem to all feel most with that particular question and the most important meat of that question.
1: And and I do think we should make it clear here, just because we find a thing anticlimactic doesn't mean it's a problem necessarily either. Mm. Right. Like you're welcome to not agree with that. And maybe everyone in your playgroup doesn't feel that way that's perfectly fine we're not telling you we are right and and, and, and imposing that upon you we're just like sharing our opinion of when we play a game this is the kind of thing we find anticlimactic
0: yeah and and we're going to disagree because some of the some of the notes that i know joey and dana put in there i kind of looked i was like hold up what so (laughs) so we we're going to make ourselves scratch our heads because we obviously don't even have like a consensus on some of these cards either
2: yeah. And I think that's as good an excuse as any to actually get into what some of those responses really were. And Matt, as you said, we don't always agree with all of them, but these are just what the things that were most commonly reported in the responses to that question seemed to be. Um, some of the most popular answers, I don't know, y'all can probably all say them along with me when you're listening. Approach of the second sun was one of the most common things that people said. Thoth's oracle as well. Craterhoof behemoth. Torment of Hailfire, Extanguinate. I think we're, those were like the top responses from amongst people. We saw a lot of those. These cards that classify themselves very much as like, the game is over now. These cards are definitionally game enders. And they absolutely lend themselves to that sort of out of nowhere feeling of the game is like suddenly done.
1: Uh, so for me personally, it's the out of nowhere feeling. Um, but it, it's the out of nowhere feeling combined with the feeling that the person who who used those to win the game didn't have to do anything to, to beside, aside from top deck that card to, to be put in the winning position. So, like, that, that's one of the reasons mm-hmm. I think Sanguinet feels that way. Oh, the game has gone eight turns. And so, and you've ramped a couple times, so now you're just gonna win because of Exanguinate. It doesn't require you to have done anything other than sat down in a chair. <laughs> whereas, uh, I don't probably agree with Approach, and we can maybe talk about some of these in more detail, because I do feel like Approach requires you to do a few things for the most part to get to that win condition. Um, so, uh, Approach is one that I don't necessarily tend to feel as anticlimactic, whereas Exanguinate or Torment of Hellfire are ones that I do tend to feel that way about.
0: See, I, I, I would probably agree with you. For the most part, I don't mind, at least a few years ago, I should I should say, Exsanguinate Torment of Hellfly. Anything that requires you to pay X mana, you have to be accruing stuff. But with how many treasures we've gotten, how easy it is to get a huge amount of mana fairly easily. And especially, and we'll probably touch on this a little bit, little bit more too later, but if you're tutoring after you do a huge amount of ramping and creating a ton of treasures and you just, okay, uh, well, oh, I top deck to tutor. I'm just going to tutor for Torment and win. That That is definitely the type of yeah. <laughs> type of feeling where, especially, and, and maybe this is just me, if you tutor for this, that just adds like insult to injury for me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I would say a few years ago where it was much, much harder to cast X spells for a huge amount of mana. Yeah, I, I, I kind of didn't mind it so much, but these days it's just so much easier. So yes, I, I've kind of turned the corner on those two cards.
2: Well no here's a, here's a paradoxical thing and i feel a little bit like a devil advocate when I say this, so like I don't actually believe this, but like there is a paradoxical thing going on here where like if a person is tutoring for these, Matt, I agree with you, it does feel more anticlimactic, but at least then I do see it coming. So it doesn't have the out-of-nowhere feel necessarily. And so it's not just the surprise element, it's really the disconnect between what was happening previously. Or especially with some of these, like yeah. a torment of hailfire can be a win condition, sort of generically in so many different strategies that it feels like it doesn't have it doesn't feel like the way that this specific commander wants to win and i think that's the thing that gets it from me like a moldrotha deck with a torment of Hellfire, i feel like there's a disconnect i'm like that's not how that deck really wants to end a game because it doesn't feel befitting of royal majesty or, or stuff like that mm-hmm. like i really think that thematicism is what gets me because it makes things more exciting to recall and to tell stories about later rather than making it something you want to forget. Sure. Uh, So real quick, for instance, in my Rehan and Ishai deck, I just removed Cyclonic Rift from that deck and I replaced it with a Mirror Weave, which is a spell that can turn every creature on the field into a copy of target non-legendary creature. And it's a kind of weird change, like one of those cards is way more reliable than the other, but here's why I did it. In a game recently, I actually got to use the Mirror Weave on a Colonian Hydra, which is a 0-0 zero <laughs> zero that doubles all your plus one counters when it attacks. So I turned everything into a 0-0, which meant that all my opponent's creatures immediately die, but all of mine already had plus one counters on them, so they got to live. And then I could go to combat with a bunch of Colonian Hydras, and so they all (laughs) doubled each other when I attacked with all of them, and I cleaned house. That kind of thing is way more exciting than the usual suspects. And it probably will never (laughs) happen again because the stars have to align just right with some frankly kind of iffy cards. But man, it was cool. And so we don't don't just want to not play against anticlimactic cards. Really, we're all kind of chasing the experience of achieving stuff that we've never seen in a game before. And I don't know if that resonates with you guys, but it really feels strong for me.
0: Well, I think that probably applies to most of the answers that we're going to talk about in this episode is they feel all of them feel very generic. There isn't anything really tied to a certain commander with a lot of these. And so that's where I think a lot of the avarice comes from is they're just so generic and any deck can do this, which means. There's a lot of opportunities out in the wild for these to get abused. Because and, and, there's even cards on here that I, I I play myself, but I'm like, oh, well, yeah, that does really kind of fit into any green deck, any red deck or whatever. So I... I would say that's where a majority of people's bitter feelings about these cards comes from, is just how generic they are, like you said.
1: Mm. I, I definitely think Exanguinate is going to feel less anticlimactic if someone's been playing a life game, de- game deck the entire time. Very fair. Or, or Triumph is going to feel less anticlimactic if the person's been doing poison or infect kind of things the entire game. So yeah, for sure, that 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 definitely changes how it feels for me. For Absolutely.
2: And, and let's actually get into that. You just mentioned Triumph of the Hordes. That was another popular answer, and there were a handful of others that are worth mentioning real quick here too. Expropriate the big nine mana take all the turns stuff. Like usually, yeah, kind of is the um, the precursor to a game ending. Insurrection was another very popular response, which I am eager to talk about with Matt. Um, and then divine intervention, the enchantment that if enough time passes, the game is just a draw. Uh, yep, I feel that. Y- you should that. be and- <laughs>
1: delighted to be playing with enough people running Divine Intervention in the first place that it
2: becomes a problem. Yeah, that one just blows my mind. And also, any basically any two-card combo. Like, if people are using tooth and nail to find a Machaes and Triskelion, or if people are doing Exquisite Blood, Sanguine Bond, those types of two-card combos were also very popular responses. And I think a lot of them fit, again, that same mold of the oh suddenly the thing is over and that has a way that has that disconnect. But Dana, like you said, triumph in an infect deck, yeah, that feels correct. Like, yeah, that that totally. I'm I'm not gonna be bitter, sad, salty. It won't feel anticlimactic to me. It will feel thematic and appropriate. And I wouldn't necessarily feel that way if like Matt suddenly had it in his rockadraga Draga deck or, or something like that. Um, even though I totally respect the crap out of that card, and most of the time when Triumph would win a game, I usually feel that an overwhelming stampede would also win the game. But I also still at least see emotionally where kind of that comes from.
1: And, and, and in the case of those cards and and Craterhoof to a degree as well, you need a board state like those don't you don't just top deck a Craterhoof and win a game. Yes, like you have to have built something up. Yes. Um, versus an appropriate where you can literally, you know, do nothing but play lands for nine turns <laughs> and and top deck. And expropriate, and there's a chance you can win, or at least like decimate everybody else. Um, so, so that's I think the difference for me. I, I tend to not mind the green overrun style cards that badly because you need to have done something for them to actually work.
0: Yeah, Dana, you you took the air out of what I was getting ready to say. So, <laughs> the, look, the look at you for <laughs> how how the turntables. Uh, but but you are absolutely correct. My biggest pushback against cards like Crater Hoof overrun effects all of that is that it requires a board state you you do see when they untap and oh well they have eight creatures in play well what do you think those six sixes are going to be doing all game blocking no <laughs> people want to, to turn things sideways if they're playing a deck with a bunch of big creatures or going wide what do you think they're going to do with those the entire time so when you when somebody hard casts a crater hoof or whatever or overrun Yeah, like that's not really winning out of nowhere because you let them accrue this entire board state. Now, when people are, are going and another two card combo that maybe like a lot of folks don't love is if somebody casts a tooth and nail and they entwine it and then they pull up a crater hoof plus an Avenger of Zendikar, then yes, I absolutely get that. but. Is that a crater hoof behemoth problem or is that a tooth and nail problem? Because I would, I, I would argue that a lot of the times that crater hoof or overrun effects lead to sour experiences, it's because they were enabled by something cheating them into play or getting abused. Not, I, I, I've never hard cast a crater hoof and felt like I was doing something unfair. I was doing something powerful, but not unfair.
2: I just really like casting ink shield after someone cast Craterhoof. hoof. That's all I can tell you. <laughs>
0: sure. That's <laughs> yeah. totally fine too. But like,
1: yeah,
0: holy cow. Like y- you also let me get 12 creatures in play. Yeah. And so naturally, yeah, like Craterhoof hoof is going to win. But if I only had one creature in play, cause you kept me in check, then creative one do Boo
2: so let's i appreciate your staunch defense of Crater hoof behemoth matt it, it is showing up in seventy five thousand decks i don't know if it needs the help but i'm sure it very much appreciates you it, it, um yeah <laughs> but but here's the Craterhoof hoof is a big girl she can stand up for herself there you go but i am personally curious whether or not you guys think that the sheer popularity here is one of the bigger factors um the, the there's an element to this where you see this card in multiple ways in, in multiple across multiple games and so again it doesn't have that feeling of thematicism like a moldrotha deck winning with a Greater hoof also feels like ah, is that how this commander wants to win and Craterhoof hoof can do that same torment of to fail fire sort of any deck could do this any deck with a lot of creatures so matt while you're totally right on that i wonder does the popularity play a very big factor in the specific harsh feeling here
0: I imagine it does, because sure, if if a lot of people are doing it, then they probably see it a lot more, so they're kind of hoping for something new, but even when Insurrection was a card that anybody played on any sort of regularity, which Insurrection has definitely faded out of the the typical player's knowledge base, I would say, but Insurrection used to win games, but also... Insurrection was only as good as the things that were already happening on the battlefield. So so not like it just stopped people from doing things because it required people to be doing things in order to be good and in order to win games. And so I struggle when people say those cards win out of nowhere because it requires the board to be very cluttered to be powerful.
2: I, I was excited to talk about insurrection with you because that's one that I also kind of disagreed with a lot of the responses on. i it also costs like infinity mana. Right. <laughs> it costs just as much mana as crater hoof.
1: <laughs> I, I will note this literally the first time I ever saw insurrection cast in a game of commander, it was a friend of mine who cast it and he did nothing. he had like a you know he had a, kept a terrible hand and did nothing but play lands and in and, and pass until turn eight, in which case he went, oh, huh. <clears throat> Uh, insurrection and then oh I so I win? <laughs> like there was enough stuff on board. The other three <laughs> players we had been beating one another up and playing cards. He literally top deck insurrection and won the game. Um so I've always kind of found that card annoying for that particular reason, because of that one game. But like that doesn't ha- like the, that just doesn't happen very often. Number one, the card doesn't see that much play anymore. But like the odds of that occurring or are just non existent. It was a fluke situation, and I've never had that happen again. Um, so yes, I have no issue with insurrection at all, other than I'm haunted by that game. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's still showing up in
2: fourteen thousand decks, but you're right—that is a sure, far yeah. cry from where it used to hold what I would call the Craterhoof Behemoth like position in our minds. It like yes. it, I, I think that Craterhoof really like sort of took over from Insurrection for that that title of generic late game finisher that we all think of when we talk about a game just like ending in, in that way. um So yeah, it is certainly a far cry. Like the difference between Insurrection and Craterhoof Behemoth is like a, a difference of what sixty thousand decks at this point. So definitely a, a big, big jump there
0: even other eight mana cards that say you win the game or in divine interventions case the game is a draw first off it's eight mana it's an enchantment that sits around it has to linger for two more turns around the table so like (laughs) with the prevalence of reclamation sage and all sorts of disenchant type of effects the fact that anything can sit on the board that has a target on its back for two whole turns unless you're playing like a bunch of protection it's it's silly that like people are still losing i guess not losing morally losing i
1: guess
0: (laughs) to to this card and and i understand sometimes like you just don't find the answer but that's literally every other threat and so i'm I'm, i understand divine intervention a lot more like you're right
2: that you can see it coming the the thing is though at the end of that if like oh the game was a draw I do have a little bit of that feeling of like, so then why were we here? What was right, the yeah, point?
0: Sure, sure. <laughs> so I had a I had a friend who played Divine Intervention and we it was when we played casual 60 card decks. And all they wanted to do was get the moral victory by making the game end in a draw to Divine Intervention. I totally get it. But also like there, there's a certain type of person like, yes, three other people might say, oh, well, the game was a draw. Why do we? come here the moral victory that person gets it's like when olivia gobert hicks decks herself to her attracts a deck that that's the (laughs) achievement unlocked i did it i won in my own head i don't care what What you think? That's the type of thing.
1: Again, I'm just shocked anyone is seeing divine intervention often enough to be to 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 find it anticlimactic. But I mean, it's a $200
2: card that shows up in 859 decks total. So yeah, yeah. it's pretty obscure.
1: On the reserve list and was printed 29 years ago.
0: And it's only because there's only 859 copies left in the wild anymore.
1: That's probably scarcely an exaggeration. Oh my god! Now, so like that one,
2: Matt. I think you're absolutely right. The fact that you can see this coming provides some tension to it, and that is. One of the things that I find especially funny when folks are like, you have to unban Biorhythm and Coalition Victory. And I'm like, clearly one of the things that we're seeing in the pattern of these responses is that folks don't like a game where it suddenly ends out of nowhere in a way that felt disconnected from both the deck that it was in and the actions that were happening in the game up to that point. BioRhythm would just, oh, I guess the game is over. Coalition Victory would just be, oh, I guess the game is over. People would also feel like those are anticlimactic cards, too. And yet there are folks who are like, unban them. I'm like, Mm -hmm. y'all do realize that's the reason they banned, though. So at least Divine Intervention has the you can see it coming part going for it. And this is why I want to circle back around to Approach of the Second Sun, <laughs> because Dana and I were both kind of like, you know, you see that one coming, too. It goes back seven cards deep, and then there's like some kind of tension that I feel kind of builds with that. And I don't know, I find that kind of interesting, but Matt, I don't know how you feel, but I just think that there's more conversation to be had about that one there, too.
0: I, I, I've never seen Approach of the Second Sun cast and have it done fairly so i am a little jaded okay kind of like dana has that one bad experience with insurrection (laughs) i've had those those experiences with approach the second son where it wasn't that they they cast it and they did all the things but it was like oh i'm going to cast it and remand it and then recast it and then do this and then they they were cheating it somehow they weren't actually putting it Uh, onto the into the library so or if they did, it was, oh, well, I'm going to cast Approach the Second Sun and I cast a spell, which means I make some treasures and then I just draw my cards and th- then I win anyways. So it was like, okay, cool, you you cheated it. And so I just had, yeah, it was the the, the one bad experience that ruined Approach the Second Sun for me, so I'm never going to look at that <laughs> card and think, yeah, I'm excited to see that because I'm going to get back to that one experience where I was like, ugh, come on.
2: No, I understand that. That,
0: that feels fair.
1: Yeah, I, I don't entirely agree, but I also completely understand where you're coming from like I don't, I don't i shouldn't say don't i don't share that sentiment necessarily about it but i get where you're coming from yeah um uh, myself i i actually find combo in general to be very anticlimactic um i i try to like before i play games in person spend a couple minutes practicing in case it comes up so i can be like wow that was an interesting combo you just cast there and, and see i didn't i didn't like warm up and practice it so it came across poorly. But if, if if Chase can cut here, you can give me just five minutes. Wow, that combo was really interesting. Now, see, I, <laughs> I took a few minutes there, guys, and practiced that. So I can respond and have a good attitude about it. But like internally, I almost always find any combo to be terribly anticlimactic and boring in games.
2: That I, I have tension about that, too, because, yes, I do usually agree with you. Like, if someone is just like, oh, and this is the exquisite blood and sanguine bond, one point of life change, and then boom, these things looping together and the game is over. I also do kind of feel like... And and it's honestly... It, this is a paradoxical thing where it gets even worse if the commander is part of that one-card combo. Like, Vito, for example, would be perfect for that. And that does make me feel like... I mean, it is thematically related to the commander, for sure. But I'm also just kind of like, eh, that that does make me feel squicky about it. I don't know. I'm also just like, I don't know what else I expected. (laughs) The the thing that's Difficult for me though is that I totally think it's fair that there are some decks out there where kind of one of the only realistic ways that I would expect that deck to end the game in a timely fashion is for it to combo. Like mm-hmm. a mono blue deck that's full of a bunch of spells isn't going to be beating anyone with combat damage anytime soon, most of the time. So I'd want it to have something that actually has the game end with some degree of alacrity.
1: Yes, yeah, just because like for me, if I can't figure out how to make a deck win without playing a combo i considered a failed deck and i just wouldn't play it but that's a kind of a ridiculous expectation for me to have for anybody else so like mm-hmm. while i think that internally about myself I, I don't hold anyone else to that if you can't if your deck just needs a combo to win because you can't find a way to make it happen and you just want to play the deck then I, I that 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 makes sense and i can
0: so, so since we're all taking turns playing devil's advocate here, it's my turn. Okay. Uh, so I play. So I don't play two card combos anymore. I I don't find them fun or interesting, myself. But I do have combos in my decks. I my Tristani deck. I have the devoted druid and vizier of remedies co- combo to make infinite mana. Mm-hmm. Then I can do a walking ballista or whatever it is that I find a way to do with that mana. So I do have combos in my decks. But the balance that I find and and what we kind of hinted at earlier is. Are you doing stuff like tooth and nail, trying to find your two-card combo? Are you trying to put your and uh, Micaeus out at the same time because you tooth and nailed for it or because you defense of the heart for it? Anything like that? Or are you casting one piece or you, you're sandbagging it, whatever, and then you just wait until you naturally draw into the other piece? And sometimes, sometimes you just don't find it. So if I have those combos, I'm just not going to run tutors, and that's how I'm going to balance it out. So if, if it happens, it happens because sometimes this game's got to end. But at the same time, if you're tutoring for it on turn five, it's completely different. I think that's where a lot of folks kind of get bored with seeing combos happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, like sometimes you just have this board state in play and like you reach over and top deck a card and like hold it up and you're like, oh, it says move on to challenge the stats. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for it. <laughs> it just I, naturally yes. occurs and you just, you know, slide on into it.
2: I, I, I am fully sitting here like, oh, yeah, I you know what? Once Matt wraps that point up, I'm pretty sure i'd be able to segue into challenges stats here but dana that's
1: what you thought sometimes you top deck it it just happens
2: <laughs> oh man i'm i'm fully one of these days i'm going to be able to actually say all right guys well let's move into and then Dana's just going to be like challenge stats. like <laughs> just, yes fine Ooh. let's take a break there are more responses that we want to get into in the second half of the show but we've got some stats to challenge
1: <laughs> the card this week i want to challenge is in just under 2000 DDH rec um yeah it's a seven dollar card so that's not ideal but Endless Horizons, very, very good enchantment that should see more play, especially in mono-white decks. It's three and a white. When Endless Horizons comes into play, search your library for any number of planes cards and remove them from the game, then shuffle your library. And at the beginning of your upkeep, you may put a card you own removed from the game with Endless Horizons into your hand. And it doesn't replace your draw step. So basically, it allows you to guarantee you have a land in hand in addition to drawing your card you know, is it maybe as efficient as land tax something along those lines? No. Land tax is a very expensive card, and this is something that you could run alongside that and probably not feel too bad about having both of them out. Um, if you are playing white, and, and white sometimes still to this day struggles with draw, um, particularly if you're playing maybe a white Enchantress deck where you get, av- you know, an additional benefit from having an Enchantress card, something like Daxos or Returned or, again, Arcanum Weaver, Enos Horizons is a really good card, and I think... The $7 doesn't help, and the fact that it hasn't had a reprint since way back on the Warwind block, it's sitting on one printing, um, it just doesn't see much play. If you happen to have one or, or aren't afraid to spend 7 bucks, it's a very good card, and if you are playing mono white or just anything that doesn't have access to green and want to have a land in hand every turn, excellent card and, and definitely worth considering for your deck.
2: Nice stuff, nice stuff. My challenge this week is also an enchantment, but it's an enchantment that I think is kind of overplayed in the deck that it's currently showing up in nearly a third of the time. Um, Nico defies destiny in Ranar the Ever Watchful, is the thing I would like to talk about here. It shows up in 29% of the over 4,000 Ranar the Ever Watchful decks out there. Ranar the Ever Watchful is that blue and white foretell commander that also cares about blinking your stuff. And on Ranar's page, you see a good mix of different blinky stuff, and also some foretell cards in there. And Nico Defies Destiny is an interesting saga that cares about foretell cards. The first chapter, you gain two life for each foretold card you have in exile. The second chapter, you get mana, but you can only use it on foretold cards. And then the third chapter will return target card with foretell from your graveyard to your hand. Those all do sound really nice, but this is just a numbers game situation here. There are only, I think, about 24 total foretell cards in the game in these colors that this uh, commander could play. And let's be honest with ourselves. Not all 24 of them are good. Um, most of them are, are draft chaff. They're, they're quite bad. I think... I don't know. If we're, we're being really, truly, brutally honest with ourselves here, there's probably only about 12 good ones. So a saga that cares that specifically about foretell cards is just not going to have a lot of other synergy with the rest of the cards in your deck. I would really recommend cutting Nico defies Destiny from Ranar decks. There are a lot of other things that you could have fun blinking in that deck to make fun tokens instead.
0: Well, I'm going to pick up with our listener submitted challenge this week. And so this week, our listener sent us an email, which you can do gmail.com. So, Kyle Cooper Twine sent us an email and said, I have a challenge for Vayran Voice of Duality decks, which is that is it Commander, that whenever you cast or copy spells, you're going to get all sorts of upside. It gets out of hand really quick. And they said, a card I would like to challenge is Shattering Spree, which I believe doesn't see enough play. Shattering Spree is only in 299 of the 7,961 Vayran decks. Meanwhile, Vandal Blast is played in 30% of the decks. The specific strategy... With Veyron of casting and copying spells with Shattering Spree is the reason behind it, and it's real simple. Veyron's own Magecraft triggers. Putting five mana into Shattering Spree means you get to destroy five artifacts and with one cast, and you get four copies, which will trigger Veyron's own ability ten times, bringing them to a twelve-twelve all of a sudden. Oof. Not only this synergizes with the commander themselves, but also popular cards on the deck, such as Archmage Emeritus and Storm Kiln Artist. I recognize Vandal Blast is very powerful, but not as red mana dependent. But I don't believe there would be anything wrong with a greater percentage of people playing Shattering Spree when they had to pick between the two. I absolutely agree. This is a fantastic pick. Uh, Shattering Spree is probably the only really playable replicate card for Commander. (laughs) I'm sorry to all you other replicate cards out there. Um, But Shattering Spree is really the only one that really... Probably can get a whole lot of consideration, and in Vayron decks where you get to replicate for only a single red mana, this is absolutely silly. So I really like this pick, Kyle. This is this is solid. Um, not enough people play it. I think a lot of folks just kind of default to playing Shattering or not to playing Shattering Spree, to Vandal Blast. That one, the bad one in Vayron decks, and it feels really weird calling Vandal Blast a bad card, but. Shattering Spree is just absolutely great. It's kind of the the scalpel versus the atom bomb when you're trying to get things sorted out. So if you need a whole lot of Magecraft triggers and you need to get them done cheap, Shattering Spree is a fantastic addition for Vayrin deck. So good call.
2: Watch out there, Matt. You said that Shattering Shree was the only good replicate card in EDH. Those Orvar players running Giga Drows for the combo Orvar potential <laughs> that they're gonna come for you. And there is a card called Psionic Ritual that came in one of the uh the horror pre-con from Baldur's Gate, which I didn't even realize that card has replicate, but apparently it does. <laughs> so um, so so watch out, Matt. People are gonna come for you online after this episode airs.
0: <laughs> I said what I said. <laughs>
2: oh man stands firm he stands firm in what he believes in okay guys let's get back into some discussion about those anticlimactic cards so we talked about some of those out of nowhere game winners the the game enders were very much the first category thing that we saw and there were a lot of classics up in there but there was another category that we saw as well and those were what i more or less would want to call game prolongers um Q, everyone's favorite card, Cyclonic Rift. That was also a, a, a popular pick. Um, you could argue that that's sometimes a game ender, but a lot of people noted that that sort of sucks the air out of the room because it is, you know, it feels like an anticlimactic card to them because suddenly th- what was happening in the game is no longer happening. Um, and then, Matt, one of your favorites, Draneth Magistrate, was also mentioned as a potentially anticlimactic card because it never lets people get off the ground. And then also, this was curious to me some fog effects, especially repeatable ones like spore frog or constant mists. Those also came up as cards that people found anticlimactic. And I think that's interesting. And let's talk
0: about that. The the extreme amount of fog effects that were in this thread, I absolutely was kind of, huh? But so spore frog on its own, whatever. It's a one-time fog. But how often are people playing Sporefrog in decks that are only going to cast at one time? Same as Constant Mist. People aren't playing Constant Mist in just any deck. They're playing a Landfall deck where they're able to play a bunch of lands out of their graveyard, or they're going to play Splendor Reclamation later. So it's, it's never that like a lot of these cards are bad on their own, but it's they're never played in decks that aren't built to abuse them. And that's where the issue comes from. Same with glacial chasm, really.
2: Oh, yeah, that was another big one we saw.
1: Yeah,, I think it's in the case of of almost all of these, it's it's less that the cards are a, a pr- the, the thing is a problem. It, it is less an issue than it is when it's kind of a reoccurring, repeated, relatively easy to generate loop Mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily end the game but keeps you from winning (laughs) (laughs) like fogs are fogs are fantastic um but when you have a really easy obvious way to forever loop spore frog which there's multiple which multiple decks do that um then that's super anticlimactic it's like okay well i'm gonna lose this game and i'm gonna lose it in the the the, an easy way to 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 lock me out has just occurred like the commander interacts with spore frog in a way that makes sure spore comes back every turn um that is definitely anticlimactic i think um it's it's not the fog effect that's the problem so much as it is the reoccurable loop that's very easy to generate given who the commander is
0: and i think the the big problem, or not the big problem but the, but the real issue with fogs is they're a, they're kind of a, a pain in the butt for folks who are maybe newer to the format because they just don't have the card knowledge to find non-combat ways to win. I, I, Joey, if somebody plays a bunch of fogs, like a constant miss in somebody's hand, you don't care if you're playing your Sir Conrad deck because you never use combat damage anyways. Mm -hmm. So typically when folks are getting into the format, they're just doing it through combat damage because that's the easiest way. That's the first kind of thing people start to understand about the game. And so, yeah, when you have something that ruins your experiences from the first few games you're playing, then yes, I, that I think is where a lot of the frustration towards fogs comes from. Once people kind of get into the game a little bit more, they expand their knowledge about, Oh, I can actually win doing this instead. I don't even need the combat step. Wow. Look at that. That's when I think fogs lose their, their looming dread over (laughs) the, the player experience.
2: I, yeah, I, I did see some blurring of the lines and responses that I found. I wanted to like push a little bit back against. Like, I understand a repeatable fog, why that would feel kind of like. But there was also discussion that all fog effects were anticlimactic, Mm -hmm. which, like, in the strictest definition, yeah, I guess technically it did like swerve the ending of the game away from where it was supposed to go. But every time Matt casts an Arachnogenesis, I get so excited. (laughs) Like, anytime someone plays an Ink Shield or a Selfless Squire, that has dramatically changed the game and i lean forward every time i see one of those cards and even just like a regular one mana the regular traditional fog i'm kind of like whoa like i those are th- exciting
0: cards for me like 100 of the time well and nobody casts darkness very often so when you do see it yeah. it's totally out of the blue it's something you well, out of the black i should say sorry you don't see it coming at all and and that's Kind of the exciting part is, oh, the game's going to end. Oh, but wait, there's more. <laughs> yeah,
2: I don't know. It's just an interesting discussion there. And there were a few others that I think are probably worth noting. Like extra turns was another thing that I saw people say quite a bit. <laughs> Again, some stacks pieces. I think several of those sort of fall into the category of like, oh, these don't let the game get off of the ground rather than an anticlimactic finish the way we were talking about in the first one. But I don't know. Uh, extra turns, Grave Pact and Dictate of Erebos, world fire with another. Get them out of here. Aside. Get them out of here. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so that's just it. Like, I think that there's a strong reason why we would have emotional reactions to some of these because we want the game to be able to do a thing. And, and it's interesting the way that these line up because we very clearly in our games, it feels like we have this desire for narrative fulfillment where we don't mm-hmm. want stuff to linger forever. Even if we can see the game, how the game is going to end, if we can see it and it takes like five turns to get there, we're kind of like, OK, wrap it up. Like I just this isn't great. And we but we also don't want them to win completely out of nowhere like there's this weird sweet spot there's this strange goldilocks zone that i think is actually very very difficult to hit between surprise and inevitability
1: there's one axis here though that that i think we didn't really touch on very much that matters to me at least with a lot of these is how easy they are to achieve and that's one of the ways extra turns tends to rub me the wrong way Hmm. it's a huge advantage most of the time and it required you to draw the card on the top of your library it, and very often then draw another card off the top of your library. Like, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a difference, to, not to stray too much into other games, but it, it's a difference between somebody in League of Legends getting a pentakill with Sivir. Like, I feel like, oh, they did a bunch of stuff to get that pentakill and someone getting a pentakill with Master Yi. Like, oh, you pressed <laughs> that one button. Good job pressing that button, bud. <laughs> that, that's what extra turns feel like to me. Like, yeah, w- way to press that button, pal. um so for me that's something that jumps out at me is feeling anticlimactic it's like what you had to do to achieve that win and that's where extra turns for one tend to rub me that way and to a degree the, the grave pact and dictate tend to play that way as well where the person's running them in a situation where it's going to be an effortless way to just lock that game up. I'm going to play this card, and the thing my commander does or the thing my deck does is going to enable that one card to just lock everything out from there on out. So, like, that to me is definitely one of the the, the, the looming factors in something being anticlimactic is how easy it is to achieve.
0: Well, and, and the thing that I think is the common thread between a lot of the cards in this category is they're removing players' agency from the game and doing it in different ways, whereas the Vorinclex, it's just putting such a huge amount of pressure down on mana bases and everything. Same with Grave Pact and Dictative Erebos effects. It's just putting such a pressure on players being able to put anything on the board without it being immediately removed, effectively taking away their agency. Same thing, extra turns. It takes everything away from all the other players, and if you're just looping extra turn spells together with you know, your, your Narset Enlightened Master decks then yeah, only one person really gets to effectively play. And so when players are are restricted on how they're able to play or just all their agency is taken away altogether, this is something that we talk about on the show all the time. And that's the recurring theme, I think, with all of these cards here is they take away players' ability to play and stop them from playing even further. And that's where a lot of the sour memories come from is because people just... Their agency was taken from them, and that's what stinks about a lot of these cards.
1: And I do think one thing to note here too in this prolongers section here, a lot, a chunk of these to me feel much more like cards that are salty, I guess, more than they are anticlimactic. Yeah, I don't necessarily find winter or bristatic or anticlimactic necessarily maybe if you have some deck that's a derevi deck that makes it really easy for you to hard lock things i guess that might feel anticlimactic um but like just in general winter or pathetic orb are just annoying <laughs> i don't necessarily find them to be anticlimactic so i think that would be my main difference with some of these i'm not going to argue those aren't unfun cards but like they're more salt inducing to me than they would be anticlimactic
2: i i'm kind of like i i don't know when i when i see one of those at the field i'm kind of like uh like that i i have the yeah yeah and same honestly like we haven't mentioned mass land destruction yet but like mass land destruction if a game ends because of mass land destruction i definitely tend to be like i'm not sure whether i was glad that i was a participant in that game i I kind of Mm -hmm. have that feeling and that that's not ever the feeling that i want when i decide to play commander i love commander um I, I, so there's a thing here. There's that, that writing the line question like that I want to get back to, but real quick, we've named a bunch of other people's responses, but I want to make sure that we each have the opportunity to name any cards that we didn't see in those responses that we think definitely do fit the anticlimactic thing. Like, Matt, are there any cards where you're just like, you know what people really should have said? <laughs> like, what do you think?
0: So any combo really that goes in the command zone, we kind of tiptoed around that a little bit. Veto is one that... Okay. It, it, it stinks that... It, like Dana, you had a veto deck for a little bit and you always had to lead off with this isn't that veto deck. And then you had you had to prove it and, and you always did with that deck. Uh, but one commander, especially that just if I sit down with somebody, I immediately feel deflated. Uh, Beamtown Bullies. Hmm. I, I've never seen anybody play that one that wasn't some sort of like, it felt like a hostage situation, but you were the hostage and you knew it. <laughs> okay. So it was, you know, I, I could kill you or I could sell you for the ransom. What do you <laughs> want me to do? Huh? And, and it just, it didn't feel satisfying. It wasn't a comfortable experience just because the, the awkward social pressures it put on the game. Like, cool. Like you can level or me at any given time, if you're going to do it, just, Stink and do it. Like, don't don't lord this over me. Then that's what every Beamtown Bullies deck feels like. The the people I know who have built
2: Beamtown Bullies have taken apart that deck for exactly that same reason you were just mentioning, yeah, because they didn't like it either.
0: <laughs> like, yeah. Like, you're going to fall off the tower, and Bruce Willis is going to watch you, like, fall to the ground. Like, that type of hostage situation. Dana, how about you? <laughs> Save me.
1: <laughs> um, it, It's less, actually, about maybe cards in the 99 than it is about commanders I think for me um I've never walked away from a game with something like you know Tulane for example or to use a newer one a Miriam Sentinel Worm Hmm. I always feel like I just sat down I'm like oh so we're playing a game where my where everyone else's deck is worse than yours because of your commander Hmm. and it, when I lose to that deck, that feels anticlimactic because oh, of course I lost to that deck. Once again, you're playing a better deck than every deck on the table because of what your commander is. Like th- that's you almost universally going to be true with those decks. So that always feels anticlimactic to me. Oh, yeah, I, I just lost your Corval deck? Yeah, well your commander is twice as good as every other commander here. Um, so that uh, those do feel a little bit anticlimactic, and I, I I don't think people are like. If you think Tulane's a super cool commander that I guess that sucks that, that it engenders that reaction from me that's that's maybe not fair maybe you have chosen Chulane not because it's like super easy to win with but because you find something about the card cool but. Um, But that doesn't change the fact that when I sit down, my deck is going to be worse than yours because of your commander every time. And that to me definitely feels very anticlimactic when I'm losing to a commander that like just is that much better than anything I'm trying to play.
2: Dana, why don't you just play good cards then? no i'm i'm absolutely messing Maybe, i'm totally like, messing yes i mean dana just play
1: sure. corvold come on well but no but like you you joke but like but that would be that wouldn't be fun for me that would be anticlimactic <laughs> for me to win with that kind of commander so so i mean I, I i avoid it for that reason as well for for me my the
2: one that i'd pitch in here is actually zakama and matt i i know that you like big naya mm-hmm. creatures but i'm sorry I that, do that dinosaur i, zakama, I, never, I just yeah. don't like because it it gives you the mana back and then it can just all that it does is kill off everything and it makes you very hard to kill because you can't have stuff in play and it usually goes back to and then they refund man, and and like i just if honestly i would be less uh, salty, I guess, is the word. I, I would, I would have less emotion about that card if it actually could end the game more quickly. Yeah. <laughs> the problem for me is always that it doesn't end the game quickly, so it's one of those prolonger situations again. So sorry for besmirching a dinosaur, everybody, but I don't like that dinosaur.
0: I mean, Zakama wouldn't be such a problem if it weren't so easy to abuse Zakama, which is kind of something that we've said about a lot of cards so far in this episode. Sure. It, it, yeah. It, it's not Zakama's fault that it's so easy to cast a Marari's Wake right beforehand and stuff like that.
1: So based on the Magic storyline that just came out uh, everyone on ixalan is very very happy that zakam is <laughs> overpowered because uh the dinosaur saved the day nice now
2: okay so there's a question that i wanted to circle back around to and dana it actually concerns one of your commander decks and this <laughs> this will be i'm not attacking your commander deck but i think that it does fall into some you of monster. the monster l- listen listen let me get to it let me get to it let me say the whole thing um There, you, you have a Kedison Crown deck and you've described it before as a very cool deck that does have that exact type of out of nowhere win where you're kind of just doing a whole lot of nothing. Your entire plan is in your hand the whole time. And then you get those commanders in play and in this, in the course of a single combat step you've swung in with one of your commanders and then you've boosted it up with a bunch of one mana plus three plus three or one mana double target creature's power or double the damage it will deal or usually like four of or five of those in a row and that does produce the type of situation where the game is suddenly over out of nowhere and that's exactly the type of thing that we described in the first half of the episode as a thing that clearly people don't necessarily always find all that great and so I don't know. How do you feel about that piloting a deck that has precisely that out of nowhere win condition? It's like it's not quite a combo, but it does in some ways have the same type of effect as some combos. Uh, So I don't know. Like, I just think that this does really get thorny because it's not just combos. You know, like there are other examples and this seems to be a good one to discuss.
1: I guess my my defense flash rebuttal would be, you know, I'm playing an is it combat tricks deck where where I'm swinging with with Crom and I'm doing things that you don't traditionally see people doing to kill people with and is it colors um, That's my defense. I will however say if somebody did find that deck to be anticlimactic I would understand completely where they're coming from like if from the outside looking in Yeah, it can very much see that way So like if, if that was an issue that somebody had with that, I would get it and I'm also sp- relatively cautious about who i played against because of that thing like I'm, i tend to play it against friends or there it is or people that are playing a little bit high power decks or that know what it will do that's not a deck i would probably ever spring on random people at an event or something for for that reason because i 100 percent get why it would feel that way
0: well, and there's two things that need to happen and that you pointed out there. First off, don't be afraid to tell your friends and people in your playgroup, hey, this deck is kind of out of hand. <laughs> hey, the, the, the fact that you're doing the same thing over and over again, we're kind of bored with it if, if that's how you're feeling. But also, if somebody has feedback like that for you, like you said, Dana, if somebody came forward, then I would I would listen, be receptive to that feedback. So if you're playing some of these things that maybe take the air out of your your friends' game night that you all have together, maybe listen when they say, "Hey, we like getting together, but we don't like the fact that you win with veto and sanguine bond combo all the time." Maybe switch it up. So be receptive to feedback. If somebody's giving you some some comments, hey. We're we're feeling this, this is kind of deflating game night. Listen when people speak up, because it takes a lot sometimes to to speak up to, friends.
2: Yeah, that's a a really, really good point. And honestly, like, Dana, I really hope it didn't sound like I was attacking your deck, because you really did say... No,
0: you should attack it, attack it.
2: but like you you mentioned in one of our previous episodes that yeah you wouldn't play this deck against new players because that's not the experience that you want them to have like there is a a narrative arc to a game that that would kind of rob especially from a new player experience and i feel exactly the same way to make sure i'm not just attacking your deck i'll also put one of my own on trial here uh conrad i have a conrad deck and i'm definitely never going to play that against new players because oh man he busto but it's like A card that i think of in that deck that has an extremely strong synergy with the commander that could absolutely suddenly end the game is morality shift which dumps basically my whole deck into the graveyard like that can absolutely just end the game seemingly from out of nowhere but i love what you said dana about the people that you play it against that seems to me to be one of the biggest difference makers that we can have and even also like that that warning at the beginning of the game like. If I know that your deck has Triumph of the Hordes or Tainted Strikes in it or things like that, and I know that in advance, that's an entirely different narrative sense of fulfillment for me from a game. Because the seeds were planted at the beginning, and I kind of always have to stay on my guard. And that's a different thing to just, oh, the plot twist happened in the game out of nowhere. And so, like, yeah, who you play it against and how you set it up also matters a lot for whether or not you will feel if the course of the game was actually exciting when it finally got there. All just can happen just from simple pre-game conversations like that. And that just makes such a big difference.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's just kind of a, a, a perfect way to phrase it. What, what the difference between something being anticlimactic is whether or not people are prepared for that to be the, the climax. Yeah, for sure
2: yeah there's there's like a whole alfred hitchcock quote about it about a bomb under a table and whether the audience knows it or not so like yeah yeah our commander games bombs under the table that we
0: know about or not is
2: that (laughs) is that the metaphor i've gone for here i
0: don't know i don't even know what you're going for anymore dan joey you too that's how confused i am
1: and now challenge the stats
0: wait (laughs) wait wow (laughs) The
2: segue's so nice, we did it twice. Wow, Dana. You're not content with stealing it from me just one time? You have to do it multiple <laughs> times an episode? <laughs> All right. Well, instead of challenging the stats, how about, guys, we challenge our listeners to let us know about any other cards that they think are anticlimactic in Commander? Matt, did I did I, uh, did I joke right? Is this, this this good joking? Am I joking You, you segued just fine, yes. Good job. It's <laughs> the only segues I can get anymore in this cruel, cruel world. <laughs> uh yeah so listeners we would love to hear from you about what cards you think out there don't necessarily always lead to the exciting feelings that you want from a game of commander and more importantly what do you do about that so that you can craft those exciting games of commander and uh yeah with that we are going to officially call this to a close so fellas if our listeners want to get in touch with us where is it that they can find us online
0: matt so you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55, that's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, Wednesday evenings, we are streaming over at twitch.tv slash We have guests on every single week, and it's always a blast, so make sure you tune in for all the fun over there.
2: And
1: Dana. You can find me on Twitter at Dana Roach. I'm writing for EDH Rec and Commanders Herald, and you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash
2: and I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on the onlines, and you can find the cast at EDH RecCast on the onlines as well. Plus, if you have a question for us, you can contact us at EDH at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to Chase for assisting me with the post-production of the show. You can find them online at Mana Curves. Listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck Your Deck before you wreck your deck.